change overnight is not going to stick. You have to think about like, as you're making a change, people make this mistake a lot. They're like, okay, I got this one change over in my corner. Look, everything is better now. Everybody's going to do the change. That's not how it works. You have to learn the training patterns, update the policy, update the practice, potentially update the legislation. But when you do that, it's 50 times harder for someone that doesn't want your way to be the way to undo it. This is All Quiet on the Second Front. Podcast where boring conversations around defense tech and national security come to die. Join me, Tyler Sweat, and my second front comrades as we dismantle the mundane, cut through the bureaucratic BS to demystify the world of defense tech. But be warned, this is not a typical government podcast. Ready to get weird? This is a Soul Fire production. Welcome to another episode of All Quiet on the Second Front. If you're listening right now and you're wondering, where is that deep, soothing voice of Tyler Sweat? I'm sorry, but he's not here today. Instead, you got me. My name is Enrique Oti, and I am the CTO at Second Front. I am filling in for Tyler as he's uh, taking some time off to, I'm sure, do some real work other than sitting here talking to you. But this is going to be an exciting episode. I hope you stick with us. We have on today, Marina Nitsa. Marina has done it all. She has been involved in changing how the government works with the people, how it works with its employees. And she has been with U.S. Digital Services. She's been a presidential innovation fellow, worked in the White House, CTO of Department of Veteran Affairs, worked at Department of Education. She has done everything. She has seen everything. And she's taken all that incredible knowledge. And she's written a book called Hack Your Bureaucracy. It is an amazing book. Um, I actually wish I had had it years ago. Uh, so when I try to do my own bureaucracy hack in the Department of Defense, but Instead, I had to uh, read about all the things I did wrong in attempting to hack my bureaucracy. Marina, welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much for having me. And you're in the book. So I would say that maybe you did not actually need the book. But at the same time, uh, Nick and I in many ways wrote the book because we need the book. Uh, it's got 56 different tactics in it. And I truly in my day-to-day life will like check the appendix and be like, oh, I'm stuck. What, what might I try? Well, you know what? We like to have a little fun on this podcast. We like to jump right in. So I'm going to ask you the hard question first, and then we're going to go from there. So the okay. question is, are we winning? And when I mean, are we winning? There has been now a decade, at least a decade of radical change where a whole group of insurgents has tried to make the government more responsive, more responsive to the people it serves and more responsive, honestly, to its employees. So you've been at that since the very beginning. A few of us jumped in later, folks on the Defense Department. But How does it look? A decade into this journey, are we winning? Is the system getting more responsive? Is it getting better? Oh boy, that is a hard question. Uh, I think that we can look at pockets of excellence. Like I joined the VA in 2013. Uh, We were... In a, unable to do literally anything right. We were constantly in newspaper for everything wrong. Veterans literally hated us and put it in surveys. And it has been only 10 years from that. And veteran trust in the VA has gone up 26%. The VA is leading the federal government in the customer service cross-agency priority goal, which is pretty mind-boggling. Um, and so I look at that as the VA where I think people at the time would have said it was unfixable. And you know maybe you can make like a tiny inch of progress here and there, but you weren't going to make any fundamental change. And that agency, which is you know not DOD, but the largest civilian agency by far in terms of headcount, um, has made huge strides. And I love seeing that. Uh, these days I work a lot. I do uh, a lot of kind of crisis engineering work. And I also see a lot of hope in those instances, um, usually those stories are confidential, but one that we did do in California was help un- end the unemployment claims backlog during the height of the pandemic. Uh, and moved in, the, the backlog was predicted, and I'm not making this number up, 
to take 48 years to work down, which I would say is not winning. Uh, But when we left, you know, they, you know, and this isn't us doing it. This is us bringing the right people together inside and kind of coaching them and and helping them do this themselves, got it down to uh, 60 to 90 days and they knocked it out and they, they beat it. So I see a lot of hope in a lot of pockets. And I think anyone listening out there, I don't want you to think we're not, that there's not that chance to really win and really, really make transformative change. Uh, I'm glad you're seeing hope. I am also an eternal optimist. I always think that things are getting better despite sometimes the evidence uh, in my face, but I am the eternal optimist. Uh, You threw out a word out there just now that I find fascinating. I saw it when I was looking at your current job, which is crisis engineering. Let's talk a little bit about that. So in your current role, what is it that you're doing? What is this crisis engineering? Talk me through uh, how you got into this now on the commercial side. Yeah. So uh, I have three business partners and we have a firm called Layer Aleph. Aleph is the first Hebrew letter. So it sort of means the bottom, as in like you call us when you're really in a jam. Uh, and we were modeled off this company we read about in Wired Magazine in 2008. And I this is the most fascinating article I've ever read in my life. So I'd encourage anybody to read it. It's called The Race to Save the Cougar Ace. And it's about um, major ship salvage after this company called Titan Salvage that would go in when a ship full of inventory is sinking and try to save it so that uh, the inventory can be salvaged to the extent possible. I mean, and that's right, people literally die. Um, but our favorite part was when they predicted uh, a few days ahead of time that on Tuesday at 10.36 a.m., they would fix this particular ship. And everybody was like, how can you possibly do, no, 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 no. And then lo and behold, at 10.36 a.m. Uh, on Tuesday, they righted the ship. So we actually made our phone number. Uh, end in 1036 as an homage to Titan Salvage in that way. But uh, we are, you know, crisis sense makers, as it were. I think when there's a problem, if it's a backlog, um, all of your computers are down, your CISO or your CIO has quit. You are maybe a private equity firm and you've just merged your 17th company uh, and there's a lot of duct tape and spaghetti going on. And one of those pieces of duct tape and spaghetti just broke, but you're not sure which one. Uh, We can come in and uh, help very, very rapidly make sense of it. And we have really deep technical chops. Like we can hands-on keyboard uh, Kubernetes back to like AS 400s and and Oracle, like old, old Oracle databases or um, pass, you know, Pascal, COBOL, those don't uh, scare us. But also we have pretty good EQ. So we can work with, with leaders. Something we love to do that anybody can do really is hunt around in the organization for the person that we call our JED. A JED is an homage to uh, a gentleman at the VA who's... I, whose technical title was he was printer support, but he actually ran the entire Board of Veterans Appeals IT system, like coded it, customized it, did all the work. And so there's always a jet around. And so we often like find the jet and help kind of lay out like, here's how everything actually works, which is never right written down on an org chart or documented in policy. Here's how you need it to work. Here's the delta of technical changes and then also the non-technical changes that you need to make. So we tend to have gigs that are like two, three weeks, maybe pretty high intensity. And then we leave and people are better off. Okay, so let's talk then about the difference between crisis engineering and more traditional change management. So when you jump into these companies and you go there, you say, you're, you've, you've hit rock bottom. You know, first step is to admit you have a problem. You come in, you decide that you're going to fix it. How is the system, because every company has a bureaucracy, you know, we, we love to think bureaucracy is government, but you know, it exists in companies as well. What are you seeing when you step in, they've hit rock bottom. Are you seeing people willing to change and willing to accept your help? Or are you still seeing those, uh, the holdouts who think that it wasn't their fault, they didn't do anything wrong? And then what are these techniques? I know you have an entire book on techniques. 
But talk me through a little bit about what this looks like in crisis. And then we could talk a little in a minute about what this looks like in you know, longstanding bureaucracies and changing uh, change management. Yeah. So uh, in a crisis, you have both. And those people have tended to now double down. So you may have a leader or you may not have a leader. You may have someone one or two rungs below the leader that really is recognizing that something needs to change. You also may have new outside forces like a board of directors or the media or someone that's like, no, you have to fix this. And in the case of downtime, like you have you know, literally your entire business on the line. But people's risk and incentive frameworks, which is fundamentally fascinating to me and really the core to me of, of the book and bureaucracy hacking, um, in a crisis, many people will just keep doing the thing that they've been doing and they will fight really hard to keep that going. And so um, what doesn't work in that situation is to come in and like rip responsibility from them. What, what rarely works is to fire someone unless you have a truly like toxic problematic person. What works instead is to understand why people have been continuing this behavior for such a long time that's not resulting in what you want. And what other levers in the system can you shift so that that becomes unsafe to that person? And what they what their new incentive is, is to actually change that behavior. Presenting somebody that there is a crisis is, is oddly, maybe a psychologist can, maybe you have a psychologist on that can explain this to us is not enough to get people to change their behavior. And I've seen this, you know, back in calm times, like at the VA, anytime we had a crisis, the only response the VA knew how to do was mandatory overtime. We have a healthcare application backlog. We're going to apply mandatory overtime to it. We have a disability claims backlog. We're going to apply mandatory overtime to it. That was the- It doesn't seem like, yeah, it does seem like the best option. It costs you more money, but the same people that are working the problem just now working the problem longer. Uh, It doesn't seem to actually really help. But- Uh, you mentioned about firing. Um, I'm actually, I'm actually surprised. I would assume that when you hit a crisis and things have gone completely wrong and people are kind of doubling down on their holdouts, I would almost think that the the right approach is you have to fire them. You have to get them out of the way so you can get some fresh ideas or someone in who's willing to change. So talk me to that. So if you don't fire them, what can you give me a couple examples of obviously without naming any companies? How do you change then that incentive model of someone who has actually doubled down and say, nope, we're going to keep going down this path. You know, we're going to go straight at that iceberg. Yeah. Um, I mean, a problem with firing people is that you have to replace them. And uh, another thing I've seen a lot of uh, bureaucracies do in a crisis is they hire, they do rapid hiring. They're like, oh, we don't have enough bodies to do this. Let's hire. Um, And that's, uh, I have made some pretty amazing spreadsheets in my time to show that the more people you hire, the closer your productivity gets to zero. Because now you've taken your experienced people. They are spending all of their time training the new people. The new people, often in large bureaucracies, can't get up to speed in six, eight, 10 months, especially if you're dealing with legacy systems where they're having to like learn a mainframe over Zoom or something. Now uh, you have effectively have nobody that is capable of working, working down your work. So it might seem ideal to like, fire the old people and bring in the new people. But uh, you may find yourself now in a, in a place where you can't get any work done for a very long period of time. So that's that's pretty untenable. Um, some things that work uh, in terms of changing the, the risk and incentives there, we often look for um, cleverly placed automation. Identity verification is a space where this can be an opportunity where like if you see people that are, which is rife with, like manual identity verification is just rife with racial and socioeconomic bias. And people, they don't, they don't think that they're doing that, right? They think that by manually reviewing people and manually deciding if you're a person or not, that they are helping and they are actually deeply harming. And so we look for, you know, partners out there that are NIST IAL2, AL2 compliant. So we lean into like, are there standards that we can point to that you aren't following? And now the new risk to these people is, oh my God, I'm not compliant with standards. That sounds scary. Let me become compliant. 
automated away from people so that uh, they are not, they, they can redirect to other work. And we have fully automated the work. It's, it's the Pareto principle where you kind of, you do a business journey map and a process map and you figure out where the one or two big pain points in your system and how might we automate that? How might we show data? This is a, a tactic we talk about a lot in the book, show the hard numbers. I shouldn't be surprised anymore, but I'm often surprised still at how often people are doing something without any insight into whether it's working. And when you show like a new relic dashboard that shows that like, oh, actually that thing that you did is now down all the time <laughs> and is causing these downstream problems that can shift people's behavior because now they're actually seeing ground truth. And then a third, I mean, I could go on forever, but a third I'll talk about is um, bringing people together from disparate parts of the organization who have often never met, even in small companies, I've seen this happen. And when they understand their piece in the bigger picture, for example, I have had people understand that like they do a step and then at the next step, their step gets deleted. <laughs> they are now less incentivized to do their yep. step because they understand kind of where it fits in the big picture. Oh, it, you know, that's not even in a bureaucracy. We're in a startup, a scaling startup and getting people together. Yeah, you know, we have people who also work remote. The first time you see each other and they, they realize what the other person's working on and how that work process works. It's incredible to kind of see the light bulbs go off, especially when you start talking about process mapping in an organization. And again, a small startup like ours, uh, even process mapping there is slightly difficult. I cannot imagine in a bureaucracy trying to get an accurate process map. And then you realize there's probably dozens of steps that are actually irrelevant or repetitive or uh, counterproductive to each other. So, yeah. That's so let's a secret weapon is doing a process map in, in, in a crisis and also in not in a crisis. And this is something I think anybody is capable of doing as long as you're, you have the courage to go everywhere on the map. Like you can't just process map your corner of the agency you have to, or, or team, you have to go truly everywhere. Well, I think the process map in a crisis is fascinating because I think that's probably not a people's first step. People in a crisis, they want to act. They also yes. want to act first. It's not that they want to sit and think and map it out and get it a solution. And I think it's, it's, that's human nature. And so it's actually probably great at an organization like yours comes in from the outside and says, no, 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 take a breath. Yeah. yeah. Right. And it could be a two-day breath. I mean, I can process map real fast these days, yep. but you know, you have to, don't just hire, don't just fire, don't just you know, pause or, or double or whatever without some data and some practice and policy behind it. All right. So let's, uh, let's talk about bureaucracy. And I want to first start talk about the word bureaucracy. A lot of people seem to ascribe uh, human attributes to the bureaucracy. You know, it's good. It's bad. It is, you know, it's acting in a manner. But in many ways, the bureaucracy is just a system. It's a living system. And my view has always been, you actually need the bureaucracy. The, the bureaucracy is what allows a great innovative new idea to scale and catch on because if you do it right, your new idea is actually implemented as part of the bureaucracy and becomes a new status quo. And so I always try to argue with people ever like, oh my God, the frozen middle. And that's not just, it's not just a thing. It's a system. Now you have to learn how to manipulate it. And I think that your book is really entirely about like, how are you manipulating? How are you shifting the levers in that system without it being emotional? So- yeah. What what have you seen when you when you first go to people or when you're brought into an organization, you know, go back to your VA days, what were your views of the bureaucracy? And has that changed over time? What is kind of your approach to handling, you know, this massive beast in, in government? Yeah. Oh boy, have my views changed. When I joined the federal government, I believed that I knew that it was impossible to make any change there. 
And I went to kind of prove that to myself. I am a lifelong libertarian. And I was like, this place is so broken. You're not gonna be able to change anything. I'm going to go. I'm going to prove that to myself. I'm so right. Uh, I was so wrong. So wrong. And I saw, I was very, very lucky early on to be exposed to people like Nick, my co-author, people like Kumar Gargan, Tom Khalil and others, and Richard Collada who were making change every day. And you are someone else in a bureaucracy who has inspired many people that I've met. Um, because they saw you do something different and make change and make something better. And once you make a change in a bureaucracy, that's pretty addicting. Like then I'm like, oh my God, we can make a lot of change. Bureaucracies change all the time. People's uh, position descriptions change, their pay scales change, like teams reorg. If you think about it, there's a lot that bureaucracies change all the time. And to your point, like a lot of the book and a lot of what I've seen work is when people use the natural rhythms of the bureaucracy to make the change. Where people go wrong is they come in and they don't learn how the bureaucracy works and they end up slamming their head against like a brick or maybe that what uh, like diamond wall, like absolutely like not, not movable. Uh, and we saw a lot of people come in through, especially through like US digital service who were private sector heroes who came in and just failed miserably because they didn't take the time to learn how the bureaucracy works. And I would add like changing bureaucracy at scale requires some patience. And I'm very, very lucky in many ways that I started at the VA, which is so big that just sort of making any change is slow because it taught me, you know, now in other areas to not expect change, change overnight is, is not going to stick. Uh, right. You have to think about like, as you're making a change, I see people make this mistake a lot. They're like, okay, I got this one change over in my corner. Look, it's everything is better. Now everybody's going to do the change. That's not how it works. You have to learn the training patterns, update the policy, update the practice, potentially update the legislation. But when you do that, it's 50 times harder for someone that doesn't want your way to be the way to undo it. Exactly. When I was doing my little little corner of innovation, whether it's DIUX or, or Kessel Run, one of the interesting things at the time was there was a big movement towards uh, Star Wars uh, mythology as part of innovation. And again, I'm a huge Star Wars fan, so I adopted it as well. But it's the idea of the, re the rebellion against the empire. And I think in many ways that did a lot of disservice to the movement for change because then the idea of a rebellion is you're there to destroy the status quo and replace it. As opposed to kind of the idea of a revolution where you're actually there to change the hearts and minds inside the system and change the nature of the system. It's not about an outsider just fighting, fighting, fighting. It is winning the hearts and minds. And I think that's one of the things that it's hard to teach people. You know, people that want to make change, I think, as you mentioned, they don't have the patience. Because change requires you writing policies, it requires writing law, and people don't have the patience, they just kind of go in and fight. So when you step into an organization, I assume when you come in, there are obviously the people that are opposed, we talked about those, there's also the, your, your advocates. How do you control your advocates, your acolytes, your followers? How do you control them and teach them to act with patience versus go in and burn it all to the ground? How, how do you manage uh, your, your supporters? Yeah, uh, two different ways. So if I'm running an actual team, like when I was at the VA running the digital service team there, um, this was a very intentional tactic that we had was first, a big thing that USDS did early on was they tried to fix hiring because hiring was really, really painful. And I don't disagree with that. But then hiring got so easy that we could hire in you know 10, 10 days. And I reintroduced friction into that process because I wanted it as a, it was a much better litmus test for whether or not you would, how you would behave once you were in the VA. Uh, and if you were calling me to like complain about this or that, like relatively minor thing in hiring, it was pretty clear that you weren't going to be a good cultural fit and I'd rescind your offer. And so I encourage people to think about how they can 
they can insert friction earlier on in a, in a healthy way to kind of shake that out. Also, like you may not want your next or your new hire to be on the like mission critical bureaucracy hack. You may want them on a, a smaller bureaucracy hack. And, and I was very lucky early on to have been given some chances to fail. Uh, I gosh, the, some of the things that I did on like data.gov, I've literally sent apology notes for because I was like, I'm going to fix this. It's, you know, wasting $300,000 of government money and could be this open source, blah, blah, blah. And I just had no clue what I, what I was, what I was into. And I caused a lot of harm, but I put with apologies to the data.gov team. I am glad I messed up there and not like on the disability claims backlog at the VA. So I think finding ways to, to get people on, like to learn, get their chance to really learn their bureaucracy hacking chops on something that's not mission critical is helpful. Okay. So you're going to shame me now into actually sending apology letters because there are definitely mistakes that I made along the way, some stuff that did not go as planned. And I should probably write some apologies to saying, you know what? I came in, I said, go f- change all this and it didn't work. So, okay. You've shamed me. I'm gonna have to reach out to some people now. Positive, I positive peer pressure to you. I didn't shame you. Yeah, yeah that's right. Positive peer pressure. There you go. Okay, so let's talk to a couple of examples. So in your book, you have 56, 50, yeah, 56 kind of use cases or methodologies of how you hack your proxy. Uh, I'm sure you've been asked this before, but I'll ask, which is your favorite? Like, which is the most fun? Because there are certain things in bureaucracy hacking that are fun. Some are just like strenuous work. What's the most fun? What do you get the most interest at uh, or excitement from when you try to implement something new? Yeah, my favorite that I use probably every day, but if I get to do it, it's like use it every hour, it's better, is uh, the space look between the silos. Uh, and so we are familiar, and even in very small bureaucracies, uh, there are siloed teams and departments that maybe don't talk to each other or don't know, and processes often cross them. And when you do that process mapping, like we talked about earlier, there is nothing I think more there's more fun than than doing process mapping, really deeply understanding what each person's step and role and KPIs, you know, what what are their goals, what are they trying to work towards, and then saying like, aha, there's this space in between these two silos where this is being missed, deleted, transformed in this unhelpful way, whatever it may be. And because it's between the silos, there's usually almost no, if literally no resistance to making a change. People don't want to change things directly, but if a a change happens kind of downstream from them or upstream from them, and it helps them, they're way, way, way more interested in hearing about it. And often you need like almost no approvals or even even to involve everybody, depending on what the change is. Um, I can tell my favorite story from there, which is I was helping a state transform their foster parent application process. Actually, no, I'm going to tell the VA one. That's more to this audience. So uh, the VA disability claim backlog, like, uh, you know, it was at, I want to say four and a half years when I started working on it, uh, long to get your your disability claim decision. uh, Appeals was taking seven years. And when we did the process mapping, we learned some really important things, which is individual actors were absolutely amazing humans that were trying their best. They believed they were serving veterans. I mean, they were, they are, um, but they didn't understand what their role was in the larger picture. Nobody did. And so I had the chance to go um, to a facility that had a hospital and a regional office where the claims were processed on the same site, which by itself is very, very unusual in VA. There'd be a medical center that would do your disability exam. And then the office that processed your claim would be literally in another state. So these people never had a chance to interact in the cafeteria or in the elevator because they were in wildly different geographic locations. And once I, and I was following real veterans through the process from start to finish. And I'm saying like, you know, something went through a fax machine. I showed up on the other side of the fax machine. I didn't take the process in the abstract. I followed very particular people. 
And immediately I started being like, oh my God, there are some process inefficiencies here. And one of them was that the doctors believed that the next step in the process was that other doctors were going to read their medical report and make a very complicated, nuanced decision about disability. So they were writing like literally eight page medical documents. However, what happened next is not that there was a doctor reading it. It was that there was a claims processor with no medical training of any kind who had a calculator in front of them made out of like visual basic. And they had to put in a number and check a box. And that was it. There was no narrative of any kind. And when I brought these folks together, everybody lost their minds because they were realizing the doctors were realizing their eight page report is being deleted effectively. And the claim processors are like, why are you giving me eight pages? And you're not giving me the one number that I needed. So I had to send the veteran back for another exam. And so we ended up, uh, tra- and, but then once everybody saw that, they were very, very, very willing to join a pilot of reimagining how that would, that would look like. And so that was one of my favorite, I mean, it was still, it was stressful and dark at the time, obviously, but like it was, it was really net fun and satisfying. Well, I'm going through a claim right now. So uh, once that's done, I'll let you know how that went and see how okay. much of those uh, changes <laughs> stuck. Um, I'm going to ask you uh, two quick questions here as we get closer to the end. So the first question, every organization out there in the government has now set up an innovation shop. Um, it's everywhere. Uh, I'll see DIU for Department of Defense. Each service now has one. I know TSA has one, DHS, VA. Everyone has an innovation shop. Honest assessment, are these a net value add or does it actually kind of shift responsibility away from the bureaucracy to have to change itself? Like, what are you, what is your thoughts on these innovation organizations that have spread up all across the federal government? Yeah. Uh, oh boy, I hope I don't get hate mail for this. I try not to use the word innovate anymore. I feel like it has been co-opted and it, it does not mean what it used to mean. Um, I worry that shining a spotlight and having a team that everybody knows is responsible for innovating um, discourages other people from innovating and also puts too much of a spotlight on the team that's trying to make change such that they may, a lot of their attempts and ideas that may very well work if they were in more like stealth mode may not be able to get off the ground because so many people are watching and paying attention. And and when people don't want change, like people in bureaucracies sure know how to slow you down if they want. Uh, and I could, I could, you know, with my eyes closed, slow to keep an innovation office from ever generating anything. That said, if you assigned, I think you or I, the job of running it and you've had it, right? Like of running an innovation office, you can create high value places where you create a safe place for people to bring you ideas. And you can actually train people on how the bureaucracy works and how you could make a change. Um, and you could do a lot of training and cross-training across an agency like um, to help them think in their own roles. Are they doing process mapping? Are they doing user research? Are they measuring KPIs? So I think it's possible to have a really successful innovation group, but um, it has to be structured in the right way. And maybe you should not call it something. By the way, I like the idea of teach them bureaucracy hacking. I actually don't think we do. We teach people acquisitions. We teach people design thinking. What we don't actually teach is bureaucracy hacking so we can send them back into the belly of the beast and actually change from the inside. So I like that. Maybe we should uh, push that around a few innovation organizations. Yeah. Okay, so last question. Something we like to ask all of our guests that come on the show. So I don't know if you listen to our previous podcast, but here's the question. What happens... Next, and I don't mean next right now, but next down the road when you decide to hang it all up, when you said, you know what, I'm done hacking bureaucracies, I'm done fixing everybody else's problems. What are you doing? What what do you want to do after that? Yeah. Well, I think I'm gonna stay bureaucracy hacking, but I I'm gonna hack in different areas. So right now I do a lot of work in child welfare. Uh, and I think my next bureaucracy hack is either gonna be in nuclear energy 
or in ending type two diabetes. Those are my two. Those are the two things I have my sights on. I guess I could do both at the same time, but that seems like so. You're just never going to stop. You're just going to keep going forever. Find a system that is broken and go in and fix it. I like that. Yeah, I uh, my LinkedIn bio says I'm drawn to fires. I think that's that's just me. So, okay. I, I, since you brought up to type two diabetes, okay, what's your, what's your thoughts off the top of your head? Any have you thought about it yet about what you're looking to do to hack that system? Oh, I have. I've been thinking about it a lot, um, and I actually think that the VA could be a really interesting uh, platform for this because it's such a home of innovation. What what we need to do as a nation to end type two diabetes is to is to change so many risk and incentive frameworks. You've got corn subsidies, food deserts, what you can spend um, like SNAP benefits on, um, the way that Medicare Advantage star ratings work, where we reward Medicare Advantage plans for uh, treating people's type 2 diabetes. And I'm putting that in air quotes because the measurement is like off the charts, still not treated. Like this is a disease that can go into remission. Could we partner? Could, could we get a lot more of America's like chefs and famous cooks and stuff to make sugar, uh, to make low carb cheesecake? Do we serve that at the VA? How do we change the dietitian nutrition advice that is pretty outdated? Uh, how do we look at measuring cholesterol, which is my understanding, uh, Dave Feldman has done some really fascinating stuff around this, a number that needs to change. Healthcare changes slowly, right? The story of, of, um, ulcers, and how the, the guy that actually discovered that they were caused by the H. pylori virus had to literally sit in a room and drink H. pylori and give himself an ulcer in front of the medical journal because nobody would listen to him up until that point. And even having done that, it took 10 more years for people to acknowledge like widely. I think it's a fascinating long game. So Awesome. Well, sometime after this podcast, I'd love to talk to you about your type 2 diabetes hacking. Uh, I have some uh, thoughts on that area as well. Oh, but, love Yeah. Yeah. But Marina, thank you for coming on the show. It's great talking to you. Thank you for writing the book. It is a, it is, it should be the Bible for anyone out there that actually wants to change the system. They need to pick up your book. It is fantastic. But thanks again for your time, and hopefully, talking to you later. And any uh, listeners have any comments, questions, feedback, please let us know, and we'll pass it off to Marina. Thank, thank you, you so much for having me. Thanks for being in our book. And thanks. <laughs> Bye. Thanks for listening. Wouldn't be a podcast without some show notes. So check them out to learn more about Second Front and what we're up to. Stay weird.